Well, good morning, Doxa. My name is David Livingston, one of the guys on staff here. If you've got a Bible, pull it out. Um, every week at Doxa, basically what we do is we just open up the Bible, which we believe is written from God to us to teach us about life, ourselves, and mostly to lead us to Jesus Christ. We just open up this book and we basically just teach through books of the Bible. And so right now, if you're here for the first time or you're kind of newer to this church, we're in this series going through the book of Philippians. And Philippians is a super cool book. It's written by the Apostle Paul, which was someone who actually hated Christians, like hated Jesus, and then Jesus changed his life, and he became an apostle, one of the greatest missionaries of the history of, of the church. And he wrote this book to this small church in Philippi, a group of people that he loves, that he cares about, about what it looks like for them to just live out as Christians, to respond to the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what this text today is about. It's about what does it look like as Christian to respond to some of these like lofty moments that he's writing to us about Jesus. And so this is how the text starts. Actually, if you're there, Philippians 2, verses 12, read just the first three words, right? It says, therefore, my beloved, right? So he's, he's saying, I'm about to tell you how to respond to what I've just said. I, I want to kind of jump into the middle of this conversation and I want to kind of tell you how to respond to this. And he's always having this conversation with these Christians. And he's been talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, right? That was last week. He's talking about the humility, the obedience, the sacrifice of Jesus who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then the response of God the Father, right, is to raise Jesus back to life, to actually exalt him to the place of ultimate glory and honor, and actually to give Jesus the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And it's through this act of Christ, right, humbling himself to the point of death in the place of sinners, like exchanging place with sinners, not only has Christ been crowned king of the universe, but as a result, we have this whole New Testament. We have this whole book, right? And he's saying that result of Jesus doing this is that we have been given grace. And this is how he starts the whole letter, actually. If you go back to the very beginning, kind of chapter one, he's talking to these Philippians. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you because always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. You're, you're kind of, we're kind of partnered together in this good news of Jesus from the first day until now. And I'm actually, I can pray with joy over you because I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he says, it's actually right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. And so in chapter 2, he gets to the high point of this letter, and he points to the cross of Christ, right? The exaltation of Jesus Christ above all things. This, this act of God that didn't just give us grace, but exalted him above all things. And he's saying, how do we as Christians respond to this greatness? Like, it's, it's an amazing section. If you haven't read, if you're here for the first time, you should go back and just read what happened before this, because it's like an unbelievable thing he's saying. It's this lofty moment of greatness of Jesus Christ, and he's saying, how do we respond to this outpouring of grace that now marks our lives? And this is his answer. How do we respond? He says this, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my 
absence, right? Because he was with them for a while as like a pastor, and then, but now he's in prison, and so he can't be with them. And so he's saying, I, I was with you, and you were obeying. It was awesome. You were following Jesus. You were being conformed to him. You were, like, you were actually following Jesus. Now that I'm gone, he says, actually, not only my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, and even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. What he's going to do in this section is he's going to kind of start by giving us theology. He's going to say, I want to actually start by kind of explaining how this kind of change based off of the grace of Jesus works. And I want, I want to actually help you think rightly about this. So the theology, how we think, and then he's going to move to practice. He's going to say, I'm actually going to tell you what you should do in response to it. And then he's going to give you the purpose. Like, why do we do this? What is the result of this thinking and doing? And so he wants to start with theology. He says, how do we respond to grace? Now, what's really interesting is I think that in this room, every single one of us has a tendency to respond to grace in one of two ways. The Bible says there's kind of like a narrow road, right? Like in Bible talk, it's a narrow road of how we're supposed to respond to grace, how we should. And all of us, because we're fallen and we have these kind of like sinful instincts, we have a propensity to kind of wander off that narrow path and respond to grace in one of two ways. You could think of these like two ditches. And one is like the lazy approach to grace, okay? Now, the lazy approach to grace, like this, this kind of ditch on this side of the road, it's someone who hears the gospel, who kind of hears rightly that salvation is by faith alone, it's by grace alone. It's, it's not something that we perform or do. And so you believe that because Jesus did everything, which is true, you then assume that you don't have to do anything. And you kind of have this posture where you're, like, you're actually thankful for the grace and forgiveness for who you are and your weaknesses and your failures. You're thankful for that grace, but you don't really work hard to change in light of what Jesus has done. That's like a lazy approach to grace. But then the other side of the road, like the other ditch, right, is like a legalistic approach to grace. Now, now this is someone who actually works really hard to change. Or maybe they don't work really hard to change. Maybe they actually don't work that hard at all. But to the extent that they're working hard to obey the laws of God, to be the right kind of person they think God wants them to be, they think that to the extent that they do that, God owes them grace. And so you have this kind of lazy approach. It says, God gives free grace. It's endless. And that is true. But then you make this false assumption, therefore, I don't actually need to change. It doesn't matter if I change. Or they have the legalist approach that says, because I work really hard, God owes me grace. Or because I am this kind of person who is spiritual and tries to read the Bible and go to church and actually tries to obey the laws of Jesus, of course God would give me grace. Two ditches. And when he starts, he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work out your salvation. 
And this word salvation is, is interesting because in the Bible, there's actually a number of different ways the Bible talks about salvation, right? And one of them is this sort of like instantaneous moment of salvation, right? This is like where through faith, Jesus takes someone who is spiritually dead and makes them alive, right? This is, this is this moment where a sinner is covered in the blood of Jesus, declared righteous, and in a moment, the trajectory of that person's life is changed forever, right? That's what we call justification. It's this momentary thing that happens. But then there's this process by which we learn to actually live as these new people, right? It's this process where we start to get rid of this old muscle memory from our past lives. We start to actually live as the blameless, without blemish children of God. And this is where we actually become the people that Jesus has bought and paid for us to be. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. And this is what Paul's talking about. When so he's talking about salvation, he's talking about this, this process where we actually like manifest in our lives the salvation that God has given us. We actually become the people that Jesus has bought and paid for us to be. And so look what he says. There's two verses here at the beginning. And they're two very strong statements, okay? So we're going to read them together and then we're going to look at each of them individually. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, this is verse 12, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, now here's, here's the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, let's start with the first one, verse 12. He says, you are supposed to work out your own salvation. Or maybe another translation you might have says you're supposed to just work at. And it's interesting, some some translations will even soften this more to kind of like help you think maybe rightly about it, but it's actually a really strong phrase. In the Greek, it literally says, you, Christian, produce or bring about your salvation. It's actually one of the strongest statements in the New Testament about our responsibility in becoming holy, our responsibility in our salvation. And one of the commentators on this, he, he says it like this. He says, it's actually impossible to tone down the force with which Paul here points to our conscious activity in sanctification. And he says this thought should actually give us some pause. Our salvation, which we confess to be God's from beginning to end, is here described as something we must bring about. And so he's saying you, Christian, you work hard to manifest your salvation in your life. And you do this with fear and trembling. It's, it's like another way to translate it with like awe and humility. It's like take this very, very seriously. And so the question we asked at the beginning, who is responsible for our growth up into salvation? He says, you are. You can't be lazy in your salvation. You actually need to produce it, work it out, run after it. And then right after that, verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so he's saying the reason that he can tell you to work out your salvation, work at it, make it happen, is because God through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is put in us and we actually become joined to Jesus in a very literal sense. Because of that, God is now in us. And he says that God is working in us in two ways. It's really interesting. Look, he says, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure, okay? Now, if you think about any, like, a human action, anything you could do, you're like, I'm going to uh, give money to this homeless person, or I'm going to uh, pray for this person, or I'm going to, you know, whatever it is you might do. There's two parts to any human action. The will to do it, the desire, the thing that wells up in you. I should do this. I want to do this. And then the actual doing of it, like the power, the energy, the effort it takes to actually do the thing. And he's saying God is the one making both of those things happen. Like, that's hilarious to me. He's saying, without God, you, you can't actually desire God's purposes. The story of the Bible says that very clearly. Without God, you can't actually desire his purposes. So God gives you those desires. And on your own, you can't actually act on those desires. So he gives you the power to act on them. And if you want the cliff notes of that, it's just this. God does everything, right? That's the cliff note. It's like, how does this change happen? God does everything. And so you have these two statements about as strong as can be right next to each other in the Bible, and they're kind of forcing you to live in this tension that's saying our holiness, our sanctification is wholly our responsibility. Therefore, our hard work is actually required. And yet, at the same time, because it is wholly due to God's sovereignty, we don't get any credit. Okay? And this means that grace is not opposed to hard work or effort. What grace is opposed to is earning. And so what this means is if you respond to the grace of Jesus with either laziness or legalism, it means that grace hasn't actually had its intended effect on your life. It means the cross of Jesus Christ is meant to do something in you, and that thing is not happening. And one of the things I think is really funny is, like, when we think about ourselves, right, sometimes it's hard to see how ridiculous we are, or sometimes it's hard to, like, see kind of, like, where we're kind of being dumb. Um, But I was thinking about, what if Lazarus uh, responded to uh, the grace of God in his life in the way we sometimes do, right? Lazarus, this is the guy who was dead for multiple days, and then Jesus comes up to the funeral, and, and he raises him to life. I was like, what would it be like if Lazarus, this person who God, like, calls forth out of the tomb, responded as, like, a lazy version of Lazarus, right? Like, that would be a really hilarious moment, right? It's like he's in the tomb, and, you know, Jesus is like, Lazarus, come out! And he's like, he like opens up one eye, you know, and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm alive. This is crazy because I remember dying and it's been very quiet for a while, but I am alive now. And he like hears the voice of Jesus like, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And everyone's out there like, oh my gosh, is he going to come out? Like, what's going to happen? And he's just sitting there and he's like, oh my gosh, it looks really cold out there. <laughs> it's cold. And I'm like wrapped up in this like, I don't know, toilet paper sleeping bag thing. Like it's really nice. And it's actually like it's warm in here. And I've got these like spices that are kind of wrapped up on me. Like it smells really good in here. I think I'm just going to stay here. <laughs> I'm just going to stay. I'm going to like stay in the tomb. Like thank you, Jesus, for raising me from the grave. But like it would actually, I'm kind of laying down. I really want to stand up. It'd be a lot of work to walk out there and live my life again. It's pretty comfortable in here. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. The people who are outside would be like, what is he doing? Like his eyes are open. He's literally alive. Like come out of the tomb. It'd be a totally ridiculous situation, right? And what's interesting is, you know, Jesus didn't say, come back to life and stay where you are. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. That's what he told him to do. 
And so it wasn't actually that waking up from the dead was like the point. No, waking up from the dead was necessary, but the goal of Jesus command was actually that he would stand up and come out of the tomb and he needed to be raised to life to do that but if he doesn't come out of the tomb he's actually not doing the very thing God resurrected him to do a lazy Lazarus makes no sense and it would be a terrible chapter of the Bible if that's what happened it's just like I don't know close put the tomb like roll a stone back over I guess it's not coming out right what about a legalistic Lazarus right this is maybe even like more ridiculous right like this dude like he like wakes up and like, Lazarus, come out. And he's like, oh, ah! he starts like crawl, climbing and he's like rolling out of this thing. He runs out, he's like high-fiving people. He's like, this is amazing. He starts to start like chant like, Lazarus, Lazarus. Like he's like high-fiving people. He's like, this is incredible. Did you see what I just did? And then he rolls over to Jesus. You know, he's like, hey, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but when you said come out and I did that. Like, I did it. Like, I killed it. Like, I got up. I walked out of the tomb. I don't know if you noticed, I'm pretty good at raising from the dead. Isn't that awesome what I just did? And so, Jesus, by the way, I've been meaning to kind of talk to you about my finances, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming there's some kind of, like, blessing on me because I performed this. I did this thing. And so, I don't know if you want, like, to write me a check or if you want my Amazon wish list. Like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm assuming, like, you're going to bless me because of what I just did for you, Right? And we'd be like, Lazarus, are you kidding? Like, you were dead, and then this dude spoke your name, and you came back to life. You don't get credit for that. Like, Jesus did this. How are you going to take credit for something that was completely God's doing? But listen, this is exactly what we do when we think that a good action or some moment of obedience would, like, earn us God's favor. Ephesians 2 says it's when we were dead in our trespasses and sins that that is when God made us alive together with Christ. He said it's by grace you've been saved. And so that means that our obedience to Jesus, our pursuit of holiness, they are like these steps that we are taking as resurrected people walking out of the tomb. And so it means that, yes, we are the ones walking but Jesus is the one who gets glory from every one of those steps. And so this journey of salvation, this is like to sum it up, it's like Jesus has actually bought and paid for this. Like he's actually put his Holy Spirit in you and he's joined himself to you. And so that means that every single step of this journey, as you kind of like manifest the salvation you have in your life, every step of this journey is due to him. But as the one who's been joined to Christ, you actually have to take every one of those steps. And he's saying, this is the, the theology. This is the way I want you to think about this. That every step of your growth and holiness, 100% of those steps are your responsibility. You have to take them. You have to. And yet, every step is 100% due to God's sovereignty in your life. Therefore, he gets the glory, not you. And because of this, listen, because these two things are true, it means you can actually do it. Like when Jesus called out to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out, he actually could, even though it was impossible for a dead person to come out of the tomb. Because the power of Jesus Christ goes with his command to his people. 
He doesn't tell people to do something they can't actually do. He tells people to do things that he then gives his spirit with his word to empower them to actually obey. Listen, there is not a single command in the Bible that God gives his people that he does not intend for them to one day be able to do perfectly. Not one. And so there's this thing that happens here in this, this whole kind of passage of Philippians, right, where he's, he's just finished, like, kind of plumbing the depths of heaven and earth, right? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the humility of him, and the exaltation of him as king of the universe, and he's saying, this is incredible, and he's saying, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, awe and humility. Become who Jesus has bought and paid for you to be, and he's saying, and you can actually do this because it is God who is in you working, and it's like, wow, this is amazing. This is like building up to this climax, and you're like, what is this grand vision of holiness he is going to call us to? What is all this building towards? What does it actually look like to kind of manifest and work out our salvation in our lives? How do we actually become the people he's called us to be? What does it look like? This is what he says in verse 14, okay? This is all it builds towards. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Listen, I don't know about you, I am shocked that that is what he says next. I'm shocked. Like, this is his big command. This is what everything has been building up for. He's like, Jesus Christ, the humble one who's exalted above all the heavens, has put his spirit in you to obey and live this life of perfection. So here's what you need to do to respond. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. And what's so interesting is like, this isn't just like a throwaway line. Like he's like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, in light of all this, try not to complain so much. It's kind of a bad look, right? That's, that's not what he's doing. It's, it's actually the center of this whole passage we're reading today. He says he's given you the theology of change, how you should think about this, but now he's giving us the practice. And he says, this is what you should actually do in your life doing all things without grumbling, or another way just to say complaining, or disputing, or arguing, right? And it's like most trans, some translations are complaining and arguing, this kind of like grumbling spirit. So do all things without complaining and arguing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. All right, how are we doing with this one, Docs of Church? <laughs> do you complain? Do you complain? Do you grumble? Do we, do we have bad attitudes? Or here's another one. Do you ever argue? <laughs> like, have you ever argued before? Do you ever argue with your spouse? Probably, right? Do you ever argue with your kids? Probably. Do you ever fight for something that you feel entitled to? 
Yes, right? Of course we do. And one of the reasons is because we are Americans, dang it, right? Like, of course we complain. Of course we fight for what we're entitled to. Like, our whole country was founded on complaining, right? Like, the British taxed our tea, and we were like, blood will be shed, right? It's like, it's sort of revisionist, but basically that's what happened, right? And we complain a lot. We have a ton of things that we look at in the world, and we're like, mm, this isn't right. This isn't going so well. Things should be going better for me. I'm going to complain. I looked this up, the average person complains out loud, like out loud, 15 to 30 times a day. (laughs) Isn't that hilarious? Like we're asleep for like eight. And so like the rest, like we're like doubling up every hour. We're like walking to someone or out loud in our car. We're just like, I am going to complain about my life out loud 30 times, right? And it's interesting, if you remember from Genesis 3, Right after the fall, Adam and Eve, right, they, they eat the fruit, they make this horrible mistake, ruins the, the world, right, kind of a big mistake. Uh, and then right after this, uh, the very next thing that happens is that God goes to Adam, he's like, Adam, where are you? And they have this like very, like one sentence conversation. And then the very next thing Adam does is start complaining. It's like as soon as sin enters the world, people start complaining. It's one of actually the kind of signifiers of sinful people in a world. They complain. And this to me is actually pretty funny because it's like the Apostle Paul is just looking at Christians and he's saying like, dude, hey, listen, you want to shine like a bright light in the world? You want to demonstrate to like the entire world that you are a child of God, that you are blameless. The most countercultural thing you could do, stop complaining. It's like if you just were thankful and rejoiced instead of complained and argued so much, you would be like this beacon of light in a world of complaining people. And he says that we actually need to do this. It's not like an option for us. He says we need to do this that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so he's saying that your complaining and your attitude in life is actually intertwined with your status as children of God. Isn't that really interesting? And, And what's also interesting about that line is it's a quotation from Deuteronomy. He's kind of like trying to pull them out of this kind of conversation he's having. He's trying to like use this, these quotations from Deuteronomy to get them to start thinking back to the story of Israel in the wilderness. Because uh, this, with the Philippians, is not the first time God's people have complained. Okay, Actually, like the whole history of God's people, you could summarize it as like, God did great things for them, and they complained a lot. Okay, And he's like, remember back in the, the wilderness, times where Israel was being led to the promised land? Well, real quick, just what happened before they were being led to the promised land through the wilderness? Well, before this, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Like, they were literally slaves. It means that their entire lives were spent increasing the lavish luxuries of those who oppressed and ruled over them. And when life was, like, kind of good, because there's only really so good it can be when you're a slave, right? It's not good. But when their families started to grow and they started to have children and multiply and life maybe wasn't so bad, what happened is all the Egyptians came in because they didn't want to be overpopulated by this slave group. And so they went in and they actually killed all the newborn babies hundreds and hundreds at a time. 
mass genocide, entire generation of Israelites gone like that. That's their situation in life. It's pretty bleak. And then what God does is he miraculously rescues them. Like he uses his power and his authority to free these people out of this land of oppression and tyranny. And he's leading them to a different land, a land where he would be their king and provider, where he would protect them. And, and this story in Exodus is that these people are no longer slaves, but they're free people following the one true God. And God is doing all kinds of wild things. Like, he, he drowns their enemies in the Red Sea, right? Like, he parts the Red Sea, and then as their captors are kind of running after them to, like, reclaim them as their own, he closes the walls of the Red Sea and drowns all of Pharaoh's armies in the sea. He puts his presence in their midst. Amazing. And even though he's leading them through a desert, he's providing for his people by making it rain bread from the sky. Like literally that's happening. Like every morning, like dew on the ground, there's this like flour bread. It's like literally they're camping and every single morning, like God wakes up early to make them pancakes. And it's like, it's such an unbelievable thing that they're like, people are not going to believe this. So they like, they save some of it and put it in a little vault and like put it in the Ark of the Covenant because we've got to remember this because like people are not going to believe this actually happened, that God is this amazing of a provider. But in the middle of this, the Israelites begin to focus not on their miraculous delivery from slavery, not on the incredible God who's making bread rain down from the sky and providing for them. They stop focusing on where God is leading them and the story they're really in, and they begin to feel entitled to the one thing God hasn't given them, meat. He's like, it's cool you're making pancakes every morning, but I don't have steak, and so this sucks. You see, the sin of grumbling and complaining so infects them that they actually begin to believe and say out loud that their old lives of slavery were better than this current story they're in because at least when they were slaves, they had meat. Do you do this? I know I do this. It's like in the middle of God providing for you in so many countless ways you feel entitled to like the one thing he hasn't given you. And that one thing just like eats at you. And you're like, God, it's awesome that you've saved me. It's amazing. I have a church family. But like if I don't get married, this all is meaningless. And it's like, God, like thank you that you've given me so much stuff. Like thank you, I have a job. Thanks that like, you know, I'm like one of the people that's like made it through the pandemic. Thank you for that. But like, the fact that my boss chose this person for a raise and not me, like, I can't handle that. My story stinks. And what's so interesting is the attitude of the people of God, this grumbling, this complaining spirit that they had, it isn't just a small part of the story, but it actually ends up keeping them from entering into the promised land. Like their perspective on their lives, this narrative that they chose to let define them, it actually kept them from entering into the rest and joy that God had freed them from slavery to enjoy. 
And it's crazy, I mean, it's a very crazy story because they literally get to the edge of the wilderness, they're coming through, and God's trying to lead them into the promised land, and they can't stop complaining. And so God is just like, okay, you can't come in. And they spend the next 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, and some of that is to like shape them to be the right kind of people, but if you read the book of Numbers, you realize that at least half of the reason is because everyone who was complaining, those people were going to die so that he could raise up a new generation, and then those people could go into the promised land. It's a really, really sad story. And, and it, you have to kind of ask, like, why? <laughs> like, because God literally keeps his people from the thing he intended to give them because of their complaining. And you say, well, why? Is it really just that God was, like, punishing these people? Like, is it just that he, he couldn't, like, stand the sound of their complaining, right? Because there's sections in the Bible that seem to say that. It's like the things that God's people say sometimes he's like, ah, like, this is so ridiculous. I have to, like, stop my ears from listening to you. Is that just what it, what it is? Is it just that he like, was like a bad-tempered father who like, can't deal with his hungry, whiny kids, right? I'm like, my kids are like that every time. Every single time Silas is hungry, he's like that. He yells at me. Just literally, I'm hungry. He just yells at me, right? And you're like, is that the, th- is that the issue? God just can't handle, like he's not strong enough to deal with like hungry, whiny kids? No. No, that's not what it is. It's that grumbling and complaining in our circumstances actually reveals what we believe to be true about God. And there's these moments in the story where Moses, who's leading the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land, when he comes to God and he says, man, God, like I'm trying to lead these people they can't stand me. Like, they're complaining all the time. They're so hard to lead. They're rejecting my leadership. They're arguing all the time. And God says, Moses, listen, they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And even though they're complaining to you about your leadership and your position in their lives, the person they actually have a problem with is me. They're God. One pastor says it like this. If the Lord is entirely sovereign, which he is, and if he is always good to you in Christ, which he is, well then, when we grumble and complain in any circumstance, we are actually denying that God is involved or we're denying that he's being good. And he says, who do you think we're actually grumbling and complaining against? And so if you're here and you might think, and we might be tempted to think that we are complaining about our spouse because they're not maybe as much of a servant as we want. We might think we're complaining about the traffic because they can't stop building the metro or whatever the heck is being built on the belt line that's taken six years, right? (laughs) You might think you're complaining about the traffic or your disobedient kids or the weather, but you are actually complaining about God. That's who your complaint is against. And Paul seems to think, listen, this is really important. Paul seems to think that the whole of our spiritual lives can be summed up in the way we respond to our circumstances. 
He's like, you could boil it down to just this. Do we grumble and complain about them or do we rejoice in them? And the whole of our spiritual lives can be kind of boiled down to that thing. And so he's saying, when you get on the ground floor, how do we actually work out our salvation? Like, where does this fight exist where we actually become the people that Jesus has died for us to be? It's in our fight to choose rejoicing and thankfulness in every single situation in our lives instead of grumbling and complaining. And you might be in the crowd and you're just like, okay, got it. Sunday school once again. Like, you know, have an attitude of gratitude. Like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to fight for this. But listen, he doesn't say limit your complaining. He doesn't say complain less. He says something crazy. He says do all things without grumbling and arguing. All things, everything, every situation, every circumstance, every moment of the day, do all of it without complaining that you may be children of God. And think about who's writing this and who he's writing to, okay? Paul is in prison and he's writing to other people who are in prison. And he's writing the letter, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, because he thinks he might die there. And he's writing to other people who are in the same situation. <laughs> and he writes to those people, and he says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And, and we think, like, okay, if I work really hard, okay, if I, like, just, mm, I grit my teeth, I bet you I can go, like, two weeks getting on the belt line and not complaining. Like, I know that I can do that. And it's like, listen, that's actually a really amazing start. You should do that. If you're a Christian, don't complain about traffic. But listen, what Paul was talking about is this. He's saying, when the guards come in to unjustly beat you and leave bruises on your body, don't complain. Don't fight for your rights. He's saying when they leave you out in the cold and they take your blanket from you and you wake up with frostbite on your fingers, don't grumble. Rejoice. And then in verse 17, he says something maybe even crazier. He says this. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, He's giving this, this image of like a, a pagan ritual, right, where you'd like take this cup of blood and you'd just kind of callously spill it before the altar. It's this idea of like something brutal and callous, like to just waste something precious. And he's saying, even if that's what seems to be happening with my life, it's like this cup of blood that's just being poured out, wasted, assaulted, right? He's saying, if it gets poured out like blood at the foot of an altar, even if that's what my life feels like, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. He's like, I'm going to be happy in that moment if that's what happens with my life. And I want you to be happy with me. I want you to rejoice with me if that's my story. How in the world is it possible to rejoice like that? Like, I have a hard time rejoicing when my kid wakes me up in the middle of the night and I'm trying to sleep. I complain about that. How in the world are we supposed to become people who have this posture 
in those kind of circumstances, in every circumstance. I have on my phone right now, 1 Thessalonians 5, and it just says this. It says, rejoice when? Always. Pray? How often? Without ceasing. Give thanks? When? In all circumstances. I have it on my phone, and I'm like just trying to like, every time I pull out my phone, it's just like telling me, it's like rejoice <laughs> right now, and I'm like, ah, but today's hard. It's like rejoice. Give thanks always in every single circumstance. The opposite of grumbling and disputing is rejoicing, and that's what Paul is saying. And you know what's interesting? I used to think this was kind of like a burden, like this, this command, right? Because I feel like some of you might feel that, right? You come in, and it's like, don't complain about anything, and you're like, dang it. Like, I like complaining. It makes me feel good. It's interesting. Actually, half of the small talk conversations that human beings have together is just complaining. That's why we do it 30 times a day. We're like, hey, how are you doing? You want to complain about something together? You're like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I used to feel like it was a burden, right? It was like, ah, like you're taking something away from me. You're taking away my ability to express how I feel about this situation. But it's not a burden. You see, what Paul is doing is he is giving us an invitation <laughs> into an experience of life where you don't just grit your teeth and put a smile on even when you feel like your life sucks. What he's doing is he's inviting you into an experience of life where you actually have joy and happiness and thankfulness instead of discontentment. Where even in the worst situations imaginable, as the world watches you living out the worst chapters that this world could write for you, you would find yourself living in the joy of the another chapters from another story. As the world looks at you and goes like, you are getting like the worst possible version of this life. It's horrible. The thing you'd be experiencing in that moment is like, this chapter of my story is amazing. It is amazing. My life. And this is the purpose, right? How do you think? What do you do? What's the point? Well, it's verse 16, okay? It says, when we do this, when we do all things without complaining and grumbling, rejoicing even in the worst of situations, he's saying that what we're doing is we're holding fast to the word of life. Do you see that in there? Holding fast to the word of life. And it's interesting because this word hold fast, it has like a double meaning. It means like to, to cling to, to, to grip tightly. It's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is the word of life. And so he's like, when, when we do this, it's like we're clinging on to Jesus like an anchor for our lives and our souls. But this word has a double meaning. It doesn't just mean to hold on to. It means to like hold out to, like to display, to show people like you're carrying a torch. And he's saying, you see, when we the way that we shine as bright lights in the midst of this dark world, it's not just by kind of behavior modification, being happy and smiling during a bad day, but it's actually choosing to focus and live out another story that's currently happening in that exact moment. Because listen, every single moment of your life, the reason that Jesus can call you to rejoice in it is because at every moment of your life in Christ, you actually have something to rejoice in. It means that literally every single chapter of your story 
isn't dark, it's bright and it's getting brighter. That is the story of someone who's in Christ. And one story of Paul's life, right, it says that everything from him has been taken, including his freedom. One story of Paul's life says that he's suffering, that he's lost everything, that he's probably going to die cold and hungry, isolated from those he loves in prison. That is one story of his life, and that's the story of his old life as part of this broken, dying world. But the story of the gospel is that out of every single human being on planet Earth, for some reason, God has set aside Paul for this unique and wonderful glory of knowing God. And that his life and his story is one of unbelievable victory and triumph because he's been joined to the resurrected Christ. And that even in his suffering, it's like God is giving him this crazy, like valuable, worthy thing of saying, I'm actually gonna let you experience some of what my son experienced this person that one day you're going to share a throne with. Listen, Paul is writing this because he's not wasting away in prison. He's not. He's not having a rough time. That's not his story. It's not his story because his God is real. And his God is powerful and his God is good. And every single day of Paul's life, he is rocketing towards a life of holiness and righteousness. He is speeding forward every day brighter and brighter to this moment where he is going to sink his feet into the grass of God's undying world. He's being conformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And his life is moving exponentially closer to this day where he's going to stand before his creator. He's going to see the face of God face to face and on that day God himself his creator is going to declare blessings and honor and glory over him and every single moment of Paul's life is one step closer to this every moment is shaping him and preparing him for this day because his God is real and his God is in control of every moment of his life and every single moment is preparing him for this full final end of the story. Listen, the only way that you can actually do all things without complaining and arguing, the only way you can have your life poured out like a sacrifice and rejoice in it is if you know, like you know, you believe that you are actually living out the chapters of a different story. And it says that when we do this, when we as Christians choose to lift our eyes above the discontentment and frustration of this current world, and when we actually remember who we are and the story we're actually in, when we choose to rejoice in the real story that Jesus himself has written us into, it says that when we do this, that is when we are living as the blameless children of God. It's actually that practice, that habit of choosing to live in that story that is the only way you will not be able to complain. It's the only way you can rejoice. But living that and choosing that is actually how you become the child of God he's designed for you to be. It's how you start to shine bright like lights in this world. 
And this is when you're not just holding tight to Christ, but actually living like this is when we're holding him out for the world to see. And when we live this way, listen, when you, Christian, live like this, the world will see our lives and even our families, they will see our joy and what they will be presented with like a bright flashlight shining in their eyes, making them like, what is going on? The thing that will shine brightly in your life if you do this is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came from heaven to earth. You didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself. You took the form of a servant. You'd be born in the likeness of men. You actually humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you did that because that was the only possible way that we could be joined to you. You did that because that was the only way that we could receive your blessing instead of curse. You did that so that that was the only way that we could be part of your forever world. And you have been bestowed with a crown of glory because of what you've done. Your name is lifted high forever because of who you are. And Jesus, we pray that we would be people who live out that reality in our lives. Lord, help us to stop complaining on our way to heaven. Would you help us stop complaining at the foot of the cross? But would we be people who are filled with joy indestructible joy no matter our life circumstances because we know who we are and we know what story we're in. Jesus, would you help us worship you this morning? In your name, amen.